Welcome to Race, Violence, and Medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Brian Williams, an associate professor of trauma and acute care surgery at the University of Chicago. And I know it's been a while since I've been away, but it's been a pretty busy year, but we are back and I'm excited for our guest today. We have Adam Winkler. He's a professor of constitutional law at the University of California, Los Angeles. He's been published in the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, New Republic, and The Atlantic. But today we're discussing his book, Gunfight, The Battle Over the Right to Bear Arms in America. Adam, welcome to Race, Violence, and Medicine. Thanks so much for having me on board, Brian. I appreciate you taking the time out today. Now, I must say, I read your book and... You know, I was I was drawn in from page one. Frequently, I'll read a book because the information is important to me, but it's presented in such a way it's so dry. But I force myself through it and I choke it down. But this read like a thriller from page one to the end. So uh, I got to give you kudos for accomplishing that. Uh, how'd you do that? Well, thank you very much. It's uh, it's really a pleasure to hear that kind of compliment. Uh, I'm a law professor, and law professors are not known for being particularly engaging writers. So, uh, and most of the stuff that uh, that I write is probably pretty boring. But uh, I try to really liven up the books by. Uh, really revolving the ideas around stories. I think people want to hear stories. And so the book Gunfight, the Battle Over the Right to Bear Arms in America, is a look at how Americans have balanced gun rights and gun control over the course of American history. But the best way to get into that, I think, is to tell the stories of behind guns and gun control in America, uh, the stories of the great turning points in American history where guns or gun control featured or played a starring role. Uh, and uh, I realized that if you want to get readers to get to your ideas, you gotta make it a, a fun process. And so uh, I'm really thrilled that you found the book readable and enjoyable. And those have been the kinds of responses that I've liked the most from the book. Well, congratulations. And I have to put out my biases. I am a, I am a trauma surgeon. I deal you know, an urban trauma center. So I'll deal a lot with gun violence and the human toll that bullets have on bodies and, and families. So I, I have conflicting emotions about gun violence and gun policy and gun rights. And you seem to touch upon each of those throughout throughout this book. Um, but what I really liked is that you kind of went back into, you know, history, back into the frontier days to talk about uh, what it meant, what gun rights meant to uh, to our to our to those that were I don't know, founded the American West and kind of tore away from the the mythology of what that meant. Can you talk to a little bit about that as far as what gun rights meant to our front fathers? Well, sure. I mean, one thing to recognize is that. Uh, the founders did protect the right to bear arms, uh, but they did so largely for reasons that are very foreign to us today. Their main concern was not that people would have access to guns for self-defense. Back then, the technology of guns didn't make them particularly useful for self-defense. You couldn't keep a gun loaded, for instance. So you couldn't, like many people do today, have a gun by their bedside in fear of, uh, unless in case a criminal comes in the door. Um, back then, it took a, a minute or two to actually load the firearm. So if a criminal's coming in through your door, you're not getting your gun. 
where you're going to spend a minute or two trying to load the weapon and then you only get one shot and then you have to spend another minute or two loading it again. By that time, uh, if you miss that shot, the thief is already out the door with all your goods. So uh, that's not really what guns were about. Guns were really about the militia and about militia service and about people's ability to serve in the militia. And that's why the Second Amendment refers to a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. It wasn't really until the technology of guns changed in the 1820s, 1830s, and 1840s that the idea of guns as a primary tool of self-defense emerged. And that understanding of why people should have access to guns has taken off since that time. And indeed, by the time the Supreme Court ruled in 2008, uh, they made it clear that the right to keep and bear arms is about personal protection in case of confrontation, which is, of course, a theory that the framers just wouldn't have recognized. Well, two things are interesting there. One, you mentioned the 2008 court case. Uh, you talk a lot about Clark Neely in your book, who is actually a close friend of mine who's been on this show. Uh, that just as an, as an aside, talks about the our 60 degrees of separation, we're all kind of connected in ways we do not know. But you mentioned there that technology was the, the thing that changed the, the argument about uh, gun rights, if I'm phrasing that correctly, which is interesting because uh, as a, I'm going to get your constitutional law professor take on this because there's a talk about the, origi the original originalists, maybe that's not the right term, of the constitutional uh, interpretation yep. versus those who see it as a living document. Um, if you look at it as an original document without changes, when technology changes, doesn't that come into conflict with what you're saying in regards to how the law should interpret the constitution? You know, quite possibly. I mean, generally what even originalists will say, uh, originalists who believe that the constitution should be interpreted solely by lights to its original public understanding at the time it was adopted. Um, even originalists say that we need to keep up with technology. The framers couldn't have imagined the internet, but any good originalist would still think that the internet is an important part of freedom of speech and is thus protected by the First Amendment. Even though the technology of guns have changed and even people's primary use for guns, uh, which is no longer about militia service or even about hunting for your own food, but about personal protection for self-defense, even though that's changed, um, the basic right remains in the constitution. Part of the issue though, I think, Brian, is that too often we exaggerate the nature of the right to bear arms. So many people think that because we have a right to bear arms, it means we can't have gun regulations. The founding fathers knew that we could have gun control. And indeed, even though they wrote the second amendment, they had gun control laws back in the founding era. And indeed, Americans have had gun control throughout American history. And it's never really been thought to be inconsistent with the right to bear arms, not at least until recent decades. Now, when you talk about the interpretation of gun rights, one thing you did in the book that I haven't found in a whole lot of other sources is talk about the role of the, the Black Panther Party in uh, furthering that discussion about what gun rights means for the individuals. Can you, can you talk about that and how this fits into the bigger picture even today as you talk about um, gun rights? 
Sure. Uh, in Gunfight, I tell the story of really one of the most amazing spectacles in the history of uh, America's gun debate. And that was the day in May 1967 when 30 members of the Black Panther Party marched right into the California Capitol building, openly carrying loaded rifles, pistols, and shotguns. And they weren't there to commit violence. They were there to protest a proposed gun control law. Conservatives in California at the time sought to disarm the Panthers, who had been conducting um, armed police patrols, if you will, in Oakland, where they would follow police officers with guns. Um, and their idea was that they would protect police from racist police interactions. Um, uh, and indeed, in the 1960s, we saw a number of gun control laws enacted that were at least in part designed to restrict access to guns by black radicals. Um, and and uh, ironically, it was some of these same laws that fueled the rise of the modern gun rights movement, um, uh, a movement that's famous for being mostly politically conservative and mostly rural. Um, uh, and I think where that plays in is that uh, the Black Panther story highlights that the debate over guns in America has long been a debate about race as well. And that race has always been an important player, if you will, uh, or characteristic um, that has defined or shaped America's gun laws. We've had a lot of racist gun laws in the past that denied African-Americans and other racial minorities access to weapons. Um, and there's still ways in which today so much of the gun debate is fueled by race or concerns by race. Um, and indeed, if you go to a gun show today, you're likely to see some racist literature out there. Right, I talk about how there's the gun policies or in my opinion or the history have been about denying access to weapons to black Americans uh, while expanding it for everybody else. Is, is that being a little bit too simplistic about uh, how I look at that? I, I think that that's one part, one. I think that's absolutely right, Brian, is that, you know, the founding fathers had uh, racist gun control laws, right? I said they had gun control. One of the kinds of gun control laws that the founding fathers, the founding generation had was that they restricted African-Americans, whether they be slave or free blacks, from possessing firearms. Um, and indeed, uh, we've seen that kind of racist gun law um, a lot in American history. After the Civil War, the Black Codes were adopted in some of the, the former slave states. Uh, these Black Codes very seriously restricted what African-Americans could do. And one of the common features of the Black Codes was that African-Americans were not allowed to possess firearms. Um, and we've seen even subsequent to that, that uh, efforts in the 20th century, um, some laws like concealed carry laws, where local law enforcement officers had discretion over who gets a concealed carry permit, were used against African-Americans to enable white people to carry guns, but to prevent black people from carrying guns. Indeed, Martin Luther King um, once famously uh, applied for a concealed carry permit in Birmingham, Alabama, and he was denied uh, the, the permit. Um, even after his house had been firebombed, uh, the local police chief thinking he didn't really have much of a need for self-defense. Right. Okay, so you've talked about how the framers uh, understood gun rights. We talked about how back then uh, technology prevented it from being really used for self-defense. When the technology became available, that sort of shifted the, the debate about gun rights for individuals. 
you've mentioned the Black Panther Party had some role in as far as the history of gun rights in America. Now, take us to this case in 2008, because it just boggles the mind, at least for me, that until that case, Supreme Court had never really ruled to say that in the individuals have the right to bear arms. Why is it such a pivotal case? Well, the pivotal case we're talking about is the 2008 Supreme Court decision in District of Columbia versus Heller. And this is a landmark case where the court, for the very first time, uh, said unambiguously and uh, without hesitation um, that uh, the Second Amendment protected an individual right to bear arms and went so far as to strike down a gun control law. In that case, it was a ban on handguns in Washington, D.C. And uh, this is really a, a great and significant uh, case in terms of its importance because uh, it did um, embrace a theory of gun rights that had been very popular in American political debate, but had no legal footing, which was the idea that people have a Second Amendment right to bear arms. Obviously, we can go back, Brian, before 2008, and most Americans thought that the Constitution protected their right to bear arms. And, of course, uh, most Americans, if not all Americans, uh, did have access to guns, maybe with the exception of uh, Washington, D.C., uh, of some sort. Um, so gun rights were well protected even before this case came out. But this case was an important one for saying that that right is not just protected by electoral politics, but is protected by the Constitution itself. And uh, I think that case has had limited importance to date in the sense that the courts have not struck down very many gun control laws on the basis of the Heller case. So in some ways, it hasn't affected the law very much. At the same time, I think we see a new conservative Supreme Court with some new members appointed by President Trump that is likely to expand Second Amendment protections. And we may well see in the next few years that uh, using the Heller case, the Supreme Court may well strike down many of the top agenda items on the gun control movement's agenda, such as bans on military style assault weapons or bans on high capacity magazines. I, <laughs> I, I'm less speechless. I, I don't know what to say. Um, just dealing with the human toll of guns, I have my opinion about that, but uh, and I'm also a military veteran. I, I, I have this fervent belief in certain freedoms that at least the ideals is how they're spelled out in the constitution knowing that their application has been uh, uh, slippery slippery at times and now these are two are intersecting now it's interesting it'll be interesting to see how things progress in the in the next few years with the new supreme court especially uh, when previous. what we're seeing is that with president-elect biden um winning the november 2020 election um, in part because of energy and mobilization by gun control advocates. You know, before, if you go back 15 years ago, Brian, the gun control movement was pretty moribund. It wasn't very strong and uh, there wasn't a lot of money in it. There weren't a lot of people who were making that their big issue that they voted on. But that's really changed in recent years. Ever since Newtown and President Barack Obama's embrace of gun control, we've seen renewed vigor in the gun control movement. There's real money behind organizations like Every Town for Gun Safety and the Giffords uh, gun, uh, gun Violence Prevention Group. Um, and in some elections, we're seeing the NRA being outspent by gun control forces. Um, so that's a real sign of how the gun control movement has really become much more strong politically 
But at the same time, we're seeing the Supreme Court now look like it's going to go in the other direction. And just as gun control becomes more politically tenable, uh, with more political support and more, more people making that the issue upon which they're voting, the Supreme Court is likely to scale back the options for gun control reform. Interesting times. So where do you see us going from here as a country in, in terms of uh, the gun debate, I will say? I, I don't like these terms, gun control, gun reform, because it, it's, it, it's uh, people interpret it different ways, but the, the gun debate, where, we, where do we go from here? Well, Brian, I'll tell you one thing that 2020 has taught me is that predicting the future can be hazardous business. But <laughs> so I don't know exactly where we're going, but I do think that we've just we've already identified really some two big important shifts in the gun control debate, the rising political mobilization of gun safety reformers uh, and also the rising strength of um, strong Second Amendment advocates on the Supreme Court. And we're likely to see that tear us apart in some ways. What we've seen in recent years is that um, with the inability to get any federal gun safety regulation adopted, we see gun control advocates focusing on state level reform. And uh, we've seen a lot of states, or at least a number of states, adopt things like universal background checks or restrictions on military-style weapons, um, while, while other states seem to be going in the other direction, making their gun laws more and more permissive, making it easier to carry guns on the streets. Places like Arizona have eliminate, have said you don't even need a permit to carry a gun on the streets. Um, and, uh, and so we're seeing a real divide, that red and the blue in, uh, that we've been ta taught about uh, in American politics has really become more extreme. I think what the interesting part is that the Supreme Court is likely to play a role in really reshaping America's gun laws. Um, uh, Justice uh, Amy Coney Barrett, before she was uh, appointed to the Supreme Court, uh, ruled in a case that the longstanding ban on felons possessing firearms was overbroad and couldn't be applied to all felons. Um, and so uh, we're likely to see the justices start uh, winnowing down America's gun laws, and, and that will make a big shift. We've really never seen courts strongly second-guess gun laws. Um, occasionally, have been, there's been a law here or there that's been overturned on state constitutional grounds, uh, and the Heller case struck down D.C.'s ban on handguns. But by and large, courts have been on the sidelines. Um, that may not be the case going forward. Well, the message is there. Stay tuned. We have been talking with Adam Winkler, professor of constitutional law at UCLA, discussing his book, Gunfight, the Battle Over the Right to Bear Arms in America. Adam, thank you for your time and sharing your expertise with my audience on race, violence, and medicine. Uh, if we want to get, get in touch with you, how can we reach you? Well, I'm a professor at UCLA School of Law, and I have a, a webpage that UCLA crafts for me. So if you just type in Adam Winkler in your Google search or search engine of choice, you'll certainly come upon my webpage. Uh, it has my contact information. You can follow me on Twitter at Adam Winkler. Um, uh, and otherwise, just keep your eyes out for, for, for works that I've written or things that I've done. Uh, and uh, I keep focusing on this gun debate because it's definitely one that's not going to be solved anytime soon. Excellent, excellent. I want to thank you all for tuning in again. I appreciate your continued interest in the show. Uh, we're recording this. It's, it's the beginning of December, so I want you all to have a happy holiday. And for those of you that the holidays are not a joyous time, 
We're thinking about you, sending out our best wishes as well. Stay safe. We'll be back soon with another episode of Race, Violence, and Medicine.